everyone, and welcome back to the Lions Den podcast. This is episode number forty-six. I'm your host Fanny, and I got a very special guest in the building—not really in the building, not even in the country—but I got a very special guest with me here today. And I mean, the timing couldn't get better uh, because of everything that's happening in the world over the last week, and me needing that clarification. So to have uh, somebody who has that finance background. Yes, a finance background. That's a Coptic woman in finance. Crazy, right? That's exactly why I had her on. But without further ado, everyone, please welcome Samantha. Sam, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing very, very well. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for your time. Uh, how are uh, how are things going? I, I usually ask, like, my first question is always about, like, how's the lockdown been? But, like, you're you're calling in from New York City. You're in the States. So things are a little bit different. Like, I guess maybe in New York, you're you're pretty heavily locked down. Like, what are what's COVID been like for you, and um, and how has it affected your business or how you work? Um, I mean, for us, it's still a good bit locked down. I think they just started opening restaurants up to twenty five percent, and I think that's mainly for Valentine's Day because that's the only way businesses will survive. But um, everything's still pretty locked down. We did have a little bit more freedom back. Um, in November and we were having like youth meetings in church and and people were meeting a little bit more, but now things has gotten a bit more stricter on the work side. I mean, I haven't been in an office for almost a year now, which is a little crazy. And I, I actually changed jobs during COVID in September and I, I have no idea what my new office looks like. Oh, never wow. stepped foot in it. Yeah, I think you're the maybe third or fourth guest I've had on that's uh, had a job change mid-COVID. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's that's an interesting transition because you're starting out purely online. You don't really get that human interaction with your coworkers. Um, so how's that been for you? Has it been a weird transition? Like, are you kind of getting used to it? Or, or if you had the chance to go back to the office, would you be like running back to go? Oh, I would be running for a chance to get back to the office. <laughs> for um, sure. I'm also just a little bit more of a social person, so to be sitting inside and just like staring out my window all day while I work isn't the best for me. But I think the main thing for me is the fact that it's, it's pretty hard to train for a new job. And I kind of, I didn't just switch companies, I kind of switched my actual like work. So what I was doing in the finance field. So I'm trying to learn all these new systems, learn how to do different tasks all via webex calls yeah and- webex oh webex <laughs> yeah. yeah webex or zoom I, I for a period of time i think i memorized like the uh the when you call into webex it's like welcome to webex <laughs> and it's like i used to like recite it all the time that's how many webex calls i've been on but uh, exactly but yeah interesting stuff so let's let's share with our listeners a little bit about you so what uh what is actually your current position slash title like what are you doing at the moment So currently I work for an investment firm and I'm a portfolio analyst. So that's my technical position, my position title. However, the weird thing with finance is a lot of like certain roles have multiple different titles. So I think like in one system, I'm a quantitative um, analyst in another system. I'm a portfolio analyst. One place says trader and this is all within my company. So it's kind of like wearing many hats, but Mm -hmm. official title is portfolio analyst. Cool, cool. So you're in finance now, but when you and I were were actually talking, because I had asked you a little bit about yourself, and you mentioned something about your education path that was very interesting. 
Um, but I didn't want to press because I felt maybe let's leave it for the podcast because it's better when I don't know when I'm finding out with the people. It's like it's more authentic. So let's uh, let's talk about your edu- your education path, like where you started, where you ended up. Um, what was your, I guess, initial goal when you were leaving high school? Like, what did you have in mind? What did you want to do? Sure. I mean, I love telling the story because it's so random and it's kind of like my quote unquote fun fact. But leaving high school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I kind of decided early on I did not want to be a doctor because I don't like dealing with patients. And I've I kind of seen how my family and like my friends act with doctors as patients. And I'm like, I'm never going to be able to deal with that. So I was like, I don't want to go into medicine. But like, kind of medicine was still very widely like what you should do. So I went into biomedical engineering. I love the math. I love the physics. I was like, this should work. So I go and I do biomedical physics and I actually get into a five-year bachelor master program, but I wasn't too sure what I wanted to do after um, my bachelor's. So I took a class that was on medical imaging and then I kind of fell in love with like medical physics, which is just how particles kind of how electrons, protons move in the body. And it's anything to do with medical imaging as well as radiation therapy. I was like, this is so cool. Like you can have electrons hitting each other and then it just causes scattering of electrons. And that's what got um, x-rays or radiation therapy. This is amazing. So I did a summer program at UPenn actually um, for over the summer. I did a research program there kind of was like, oh, I really like this. So I changed plans, added a physics minor senior year, and went into a PhD program for medical physics. Um, Very interesting. So you really, really fell in love with this and like wanted to go full on and, and pursue it. Like, What was it about it that fell, that you fell in love with? Was just the, like the idea of the way that things worked was just fascinating to you, or did you actually enjoy another part of it? I mean, the way that everything worked is fascinating. And um, just kind of MRIs is where I ended up working, doing my research in. It's kind of the most amazing technology you could ever see because it's just playing different gradients. So your body changes magnetic fields and gives a current that goes through um, a coil that turns into a voltage that they like Fourier transform into an image. Like the way that someone can think of something like this, it just... It's mind-boggling. Yeah, um, absolutely. So I just I found all of it really cool. And when I was younger, I've I've always like I always liked oncology, and I was like, oh, I wanted to be an oncologist when I was younger, which is really weird for a kid. But something about like <laughs> cancer yeah, just really fascinated me. So medical physics kind of shifted me back into that like cancer track. Okay, cool. So you went back into that, and and you had gone into a PhD program. Mm-hmm. Um, so walk us through that. Like, what was that program like? And, and, uh, what was like the journey like for you? Okay. Um, so I did a medical physics program at UCLA. So that was moving me from the East coast over to the West coast. And I, I enjoyed it. The first couple, the first year was just kind of like taking all of the main classes, but also doing some of the research stuff to figure out what lab you wanted to work in. And then I moved into an MRI lab doing interventional MRI. So kind of helping build robotic systems that goes inside the MRI board. So a doctor can be outside the board moving the robot so the needle can get to the um, point that it wants to biopsy. 
since MRIs has better contrast over x-rays and CT. So it was a very interesting field, but I, I don't know. I think there was always part of me that just like, as much as I liked all of these topics, I've always hated research as a career. Like I, I am not good with this whole, like, just go do research. It, yeah. Like I need a little bit more structure in what I'm going to do. So just having that as well as like a lot of other issues with my advisor, the lab that I was in, I actually left my PhD program five years in, which wow, okay. a lot of people say it's so close to graduating, but at the same time for me, it wouldn't have been so close and it was just the best choice for me. Yeah, that's, but that's insane. I mean, like on one hand, yeah, it's not so close, but on the other, it's still five years of your life that you put into this and, and that's got to be like a big decision. Like, what was your thought process like approaching this decision? And like, how long did you really think about it before pulling the trigger? Like, was this something that it was like year three? You're like, okay, I want to do this, but I'm like kind of nervous. And then year five comes around, you're like, no, I'm done. Like, I'm I'm out. Or was it just like instant? Like, hey, I don't know if this is for me. And then I'm out. So I actually had a weird situation where my advisor did not seem to like me very much. Um, he was telling me that I should maybe drop out after year like two or three. And I was like, no, I'm going to push through. I'm going to prove him <laughs> wrong. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like I was insisting that I wouldn't let him be right. I'm going to prove him wrong. And I was like winning awards. I had an NSF grant, so I was fully funded by myself. He wasn't paying for any of my, um, for my tuition or for my stipend. And then after a few years, I think my fifth year, that's when I started getting like major mental health issues and just kind of working with my therapist, talking to my family. I kind of realized that a root of it was this program. I wasn't happy. I was just there to try proving someone wrong or feeling like, Oh, you're not allowed to quit. You have to complete whatever you're, you started. And yeah. for me, that just did not make sense. So, yeah, absolutely. I, so I just ended up kind of, I, Decided I was going to drop out, told my program director, told my advisor, like, I'm going to do one more quarter just to finish things up, um, get my paper published, and then I'm leaving. Yeah. And and look, you, you mentioned something a little bit ago that I really liked. And you said that right when you had your, your mental health issues, you were talking to your therapist. And I've had a therapist on here before, and we've talked about mental health and how important that is. And a lot of people, like when I had the therapist on, we're talking about like, um, not they were saying, but we were talking with the therapist and he was saying a lot of people may feel uh, ashamed to approach a therapist, but it's so important. Like, can you maybe give like a little like tidbit on how important just that role of the therapist is, especially when you're going through stuff like that? So anyone I talk to, I think I piss my friends off with this. I tell everyone you need to get a therapist. I'm just like, guys, therapy, just everyone should do therapy. Yeah. Because yeah. some, a lot of times we can't, we're not able to process everything ourselves because we see everything from our point of view and our family can maybe help. Our friends can maybe help. But one, when you keep going to friends and family, you put such a burden on them. Maybe burden's not the right word, but when you keep going to your friends about the same issues and they're not trained to deal with certain issues, then they're not going to be able to help at all. They're going to be able to give kind of platitudes, but you're not, going to be able to fix the root of the problems mm -hmm. yeah so i think it just at some point you need to re um just kind of realizing that 
I need to just talk to someone. Sometimes I feel like talking is the only thing that's really needed. A lot of people don't need medication. They may, and a lot of people do need medication, but sometimes it's just, you need a unbiased ear to listen. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one actually. And, and do you, are you of the belief that like, do you only use a therapist or people should people only use a therapist when they're down and need one? Or is it something that you like maintain a relationship with regardless of how you're feeling? Um, I maintain a relationship with one regardless and every I've done multiple moves. And one of the first things I do is set up a therapist just because it's easier to set one up and maybe have like monthly check-ins, if not like every two month check-ins, but then when you need it, you can easily call and get scheduled in rather than like you're at your lowest. And then you have to call multiple therapists to try finding one who's accepting new patients and when they're accepting new patients and everything like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I I didn't mean to go on this side tangent, but I really enjoyed how you said that. And I just felt like it was an opportunity to get, because that's inspirational. Like there's a lot of times people are hesitant, but when they hear, from somebody hey it's okay like it's normal it's completely fine it gives them that push and i think it's very important so thank you for that of course um let's let's revert back to uh so we were at the end of your phd program you decided to drop out um you made a bit of a shift i'm not gonna <laughs> lie like i when we're talking finance like we were talking finance initially and then you had sent me your education and i was like wait what like how did that happen so so talk to me about that shift like did you know initially that you wanted to get into finance was that something that maybe you liked when you were younger but put on a back burner like what was the finance journey like for you sure so I always laugh because my best friend is in finance and I always told him I'm like I'll never get into finance I don't have the heart for it (laughs) like I don't understand how you do it it's so stressful and um I didn't initially know I wanted to go into finance All I knew is a lot of people, even people who completed their PhD, tends to move into a field called data science because data science, what it is, is people who work with any sort of data, trying to get insights and analytics from it, doing machine learning, being able to pretty much work with this data, which is all what you learned how to do when you were working on your PhD. So I knew when I... I kind of, I had no backup plan. I had no idea what I was doing. I kind of like jumped out of this plane with no parachute on, just hoping and praying to God that something works out. And when I was trying to figure out what to do, I remember a f- prior years back, I was part of this like speech competition or like people giving talks about their PhDs. And um, it was this huge competition the finalists ended up going to LinkedIn in San Francisco and they had other PhDs at different careers kind of speaking to everyone. And I saw a guy who was a PhD in physics who works at Airbnb. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I went to speak to him and he said that he did this program called Insight Data Science and it helps bridge the gap between academia and industry. So I went and I was looking a little bit more into it And then UCLA actually sent out an email to everyone about this program. And I recently found um, an email I sent to that finance friend and with a link to the program. And I'm like, should I apply for it? And his answer was just, why not? And that kind of like, yeah, why not? Let me just apply to it. It's really (laughs) weird. It's a very simple answer. But I think that's a big thing with people where we're like, should I apply to this or should I not? 
applying to something rarely has ramifications. Like at yeah. most they say no or at most like you don't I, get a response. I also feel like guys in general always just say why not. Yeah, why not? Like <laughs> my wife will ask me like, "Hey, what do you think of uh, you know, this whatever we're like in a home a home sense store or whatever." She's like, "What do you think of this for the for the living room?" Yeah, why not? Yeah, well, okay. Well, I guess why not? But um but sorry to interrupt you. I just thought found that a little bit funny cuz like, yeah, why not? But it's actually such an important question cuz literally, why not? Like what is holding you back from doing this? And sometimes you need to be told like, "Why not?" You're like, "Well, you're right." Exactly. And it's actually, I think it's a psychological thing where guys are more likely to apply for jobs that they are not as qualified for than girls or even jobs in general, because guys are like, why not? I'll apply to everything. <laughs> While girls yeah. are like reading through it and they're like, oh, it says you need five years experience. I only have four. So no, I can't apply. And it's very much a mindset. Yes. Thing. Yep. But so, yeah, I applied to that program somehow each step i was more confused that they approved like i got accepted for each step yeah. once i got like actually accepted for it i was just like amazed but that ended up meaning so i think i got accepted end of april and the program started june 1st so i had to move across the country sell everything in la and move to new york city um, with one month so wow it was a very fun trip. My whole life is just like a bunch of things that just all like God puts everything together so well. And it's just like opening doors. And I'm just like, okay, let me keep walking through them. I don't understand. I'm yeah. not going to ask questions right now. So where were you before LA? Like where were you raised in the States? So I, um, I kind of split my time for childhood between Connecticut and Florida. And then okay. I went to University of Miami for undergrad, L.A. for grad school. So I really like the beachy, big cities. Yeah, I was going to ask. I was actually going to ask you, how is it like living in L.A.? But you also lived in Miami and you lived in New York City. So like talk about like three of the biggest areas in like all of the states. <laughs> um, what was it like living in like L.A. and Miami where it's rather warm? I mean, Miami is kind of normal for me since my family lives in Florida. So um it's nice. I wouldn't put Miami in the top of my list of places to live just because I'm not a big like South Beach person. Right. So yeah. it, but it, I have amazing memories. I loved my University of Miami experience. I loved like it was a big sports school and it was just I met some of my best friends there. L.A. I also I loved one. The weather is beautiful, like almost all year round. Um, traffic I could do without, but otherwise <laughs> I've heard of a lot about the LA traffic. I actually went to LA, uh, a couple of years ago, but it was only for a couple of days. We were, it was mostly in Vegas, but okay. we flew into LA. So we spent a, a couple hours when we came in and then like a whole day when we were leaving. But, um, that's very interesting stuff. So my, sorry, Miami is your university is the one that ha the logo is like a U with a, one's green and one's orange. I think it is. The U, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. That's that's what I thought too. <laughs> um, yeah, that's interesting because I like I'm a huge sports guy, and like all of my friends here, we're all such big sports fans, and we've actually gone down to the states to tailgate and, and been to some college football games, and I it's just so envious when I hear you go to like one of the bigger <laughs> sports schools, and you even went to UCLA, which is yep. another big sports school as well. Yeah. Uh, so that's I'm always like envious of that. Um, so you went, so you went back to New York city, big city. Was that your first time, um, living in New York city, spending time in New York city, or had you been before? 
I mean, I visited when I was a kid, but it was like my first time being back since um, since we moved away. So I've never like this was in the summer, but um, at this point, like I left Connecticut when I was eleven, and, and I ha- I hadn't seen snow since I was eleven. So <laughs> it was one what of those shock. things, right? Um, so it was it was interesting. Also, the fellowship Insight Data Science is an unpaid internship, so I was kind of like. It was such a big risk doing this, like moving across the country, doing an unpaid fellowship. But the thing about it that was really nice is they they pretty much they don't guarantee. I don't think they have a way to actually guarantee. But most people get a job within the first three months of finishing the um, program in the field that you want to be in, in data science, in data engineering. So this kind of like opened the door to so many big name companies. And I was like, that's worth the risk to me over like just cold applying across the country, hoping something worked. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about your finance journey itself. So you got to New York City, you're working. Uh, What's the like, how did you, I guess let's talk about the program first and then talk about how you started work. And are you still in New York City now? I'm in New York City now, but I had made a pit stop to Philly on the way. Okay, another big sports city, but let's yeah. let's talk about the program and then go from there. So, um, inside data science, what it is is you have three weeks to build a data science or data engineering project. I was on the data engineering team, so you have three weeks to think of one, program it, and um, have it as a working demo. And then the next two weeks, you're practicing, you're putting together your presentation, practicing your demo. Then after that, you go to companies and you actually demo this product and they decide who they want to call back as um, to do interviews. So um, I did this. We got to first, every company came and just kind of gave a pitch, a pitch to us. So like we had Spotify, we had Capital One, New York Times, Vanguard, all these companies come in to like just sell their company to us. And immediately once I heard like the person talk about Vanguard, I was like, I want to work for this company. I heard that like they very much pointed out that they have great work-life balance. And after my PhD where I was in the lab till 5 a.m., like some days I was literally there till 5, went home, slept for two hours, and went back to the office to just program to just do more research. I was like, this is not a sustainable lifestyle. So I looked for a good work-life balance, and that's what they were really selling. So I went, I did my demos. Um, it's really cool because these demos were at the companies, so I got to see like what the inside of Glossier looks like, what Spotify looks like, um, New York Times walking into the building in um, Manhattan, and it's, it was just amazing. Vanguard was the only one that's not in New York. It's in Malvern, Pennsylvania, which is like an hour outside of Philly. So we went to all of them, gave our pitches, and then interviews started coming in. And Vanguard pretty much like on the first day we were allowed to interview, um, sent me and like one other person into the campus to actually interview at Vanguard. And then we got the offer like that night. Like I said, God just opens these doors. And I... I still don't understand how or why, but it was just amazing. And I got like on the team that I wanted, they wanted me. The role was a trading data scientist. So I had done data engineering because I don't have a PhD 
data science, you need a PhD to get yeah. in the program. Data engineering, it's still a pretty cool field, but as a master's, since I left with my master's, I was able to do that one. Um, they got me a role into data science that was trading. So I was the only one, about six people ended up going to Vanguard and I was the only one on a trading desk working with the actual trades. So um, what's your role as a, as a trading science or sorry, what was the position trading data scientist you said? Yes. So what's, what's your position? Like, what does that embody? What, what do you do on a daily basis? So I worked on a team that's called transaction cost analysis. So after we do a trade, so after there's a transaction, we looked at the cost that we um, received from that trade. So one of the costs could be that the price ended up going, like you wanted to buy something and the price was at $10. And then the, like one minute later, the price moved down to $9. So you actually lost $1 because you traded too early. Okay. But then if the, if the, um, if the stock moved up to $11, then that would be a gain of $1. Like you're, you have a gain because you ended up buying it before the price increased. So are you, so you're trying to pretty much find like the best times to trade certain stocks. Is that what it, what I'm gathering is, is that correct or no? Um, that's part of it. So part of it is looking at the timing of trades, but also a lot of it is looking at how the traders approach these trades since many um, asset managers. So like Vanguard, they don't actually do the trades themselves because that's a lot of risk onto the company. So a lot of these big companies, they use what's called a broker. So that's one of the, you could hear the bulge bracket banks where it's like Credit Suisse, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, any of those they write algorithms that helps trade. So, and these algorithms are super complex. They, they look at the market, look at which way the market's going, deciding how much to trade because companies like Vanguard, we don't just buy one share at a time. We would put in orders for like 10,000 shares of Apple. Mm -hmm. You can't put 10,000 shares at one time into a market. That's going to move a market. So what you would need to do is you send it to the broker and the broker times we're going to, okay, 100 shares now, 200 shares now, wait a little bit. Okay, the price is coming towards us, 500 shares. And like throughout the day is trading because once there's a huge um, post in the market, so like 10,000 shares all at one time, that's going to have, one, it waits until it has that much filled for it to to add, or how, that many shares in the market to fill it, and then the price just all of a sudden skyrockets. Hmm. So a lot, of, yeah, a lot of these asset managers they want to keep the market as flat as possible because they're index funds. So they track according to the S and P five hundred. They want to make sure they like as how the S and P five hundred does. They're trying to do as well, if not maybe a little bit better than them. So, so you don't who- want to move the market. Mm-hmm. So who would be your client? Like who would be the typical client that Vanguard caters to and what and do you trade for them? Is that what you guys do? So um, I, I should mention I'm not at Vanguard anymore, but I'm in another asset management. So a lot of them are okay. the same exact style. But so there's two kinds of investors. There's retail investors, which would be someone like you or me. If we have our um, 
401k through them, our brokerage accounts, anything like that, where we're buying and selling on a normal day. That's known as a retail investor. Yeah. And, and then, sorry, I, I'm going to interrupt you for a sec, just because a lot of our listeners are Canadian, but the 401k yeah. is, is like a retirement fund. Like oh, yeah, RSP, you guys have... RRSP. Yeah, RSP. Yeah. I was like, I remember that the Canadians <laughs> have another one. Yeah. So the institutional funds are more of the companies. So these would be companies that have pension funds, which are a little bit different than retirement savings. Retirement savings, people put their own money in, and it grows, and you can kind of decide where it goes. And what you're investing in, pension funds, the company itself decides what it's investing in. And once someone retires, they give out money every month. So they okay. they do it kind of themselves. So in those cases, the um, companies are our clients. Mm-hmm. Great. So you brought up an interesting point earlier. You said it can't, like if we buy like 10,000 stocks at a time. And if we did that at once, it would shift the market, move the market. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's an excellent segue into <laughs> current events that are happening. But before we get into those, I just want to know, would would a company like Vanguard or your current asset management company, is Robinhood a competitor of yours or is that a different service completely? Um, so my current company that I'm in, they actually don't have um, retail clients. We're only institutional. Okay. So we only deal with people's pensions. So it's not really... Uh, um, competitor for us, but for a company like Vanguard, it would be, it is a um, competitor for brokerage services. Right. Okay. Okay, cool. So that was just like the little preface that I wanted, but um, for everyone who, who's listening and some people might've heard of this and in my, like, if you're anything like me, you've heard of it, but you're not really sure of what's going on. Uh, But pretty much this guy on Reddit um, found that, GameStop, which is uh, like a video game store, there they were being short shorted, I think, by like a huge hedge fund. And I, from my understanding, he had been doing this research for the last couple of years and like steady investing his money over the last couple of years, trying to get people on Reddit to to hop in the trend and like reverse um, them being shorted. Uh, and then I think a few months ago, they finally got a massive push, and and now GameStop's up like seventeen hundred percent. Um, and now hedge funds are losing all their money and then platforms like Robinhood are like, Hey, you can no longer buy this stock, um, because we need to level the market. And now you get into a whole slippery slope. So I want you to just explain to people, what does it mean to short a stock? Like, what does it mean for me to bet, uh, to, to buy like short or to say, I'm going to short GameStop? Like, what does that mean from, from like layman terms? Sure. Um, I've given this experience explanation a couple of times now so hopefully it's a little <laughs> bit more refined but when a person typically buys a stock you would purchase say 10 shares of apple because you assume the price of apple will increase over time and 10 20 years you can sell it for a profit so that's a normal way of trading and that's actually called that's um called longing a stock so if you long a stock that means you're betting in the long term that the um price of the stock will increase and you will make a profit due to price increase. Okay. Shorting a stock, however, is the opposite where you're assuming that this stock is going to tank. So you're like, this price is going to be decreasing. But the only way to really make money with a price when the price is decreasing is to sell it and to buy it when it's cheaper. The thing is, a lot of times you don't have that stock because you think it's going to 
you think it's going to go to zero. So you, there's no reason for you to like keep that stock in your portfolio. So when you short a stock, you go to one of these brokerage services and you borrow the stock. There's, of course, terms and conditions to it. It's not just like you're borrowing it for free. You have to borrow it. You have to put collateral to make sure you can um, pay it back later. And um, so you borrow the stock and you sell it right away. So say that um, GameStop, I'm using fake numbers. These are not the actual numbers, but it just makes a clearer picture. It was selling for 50 bucks. So I sold the stock that I borrowed at 50 bucks. And then over the next two weeks, the price dropped down to $10. I would buy that stock back at $10 and return it to the company or to the brokerage firm. So and you've now bro- profited the difference. Yeah. So the broker okay. gets their stock back and you make that $40 minus fees um, sure. difference. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's how that primarily works. So you're betting that someone will fail. So um, a lot of hedge funds were betting more and more that GameStop would fail. And yeah, there was the one guy, I forget what his handle is, that he kept saying it's undervalued, it's undervalued. So it's worth less than the actual value is. So if you buy it now, it's going to increase in value. It's going to be good. And it was just shorted. Everything was fine. And then the CEO of Chewy actually invested a 9% share. Um, He bought shares, so he has a 9% stake in the company. So that kind of like reinvigorated things for GameStop a little bit. And then they're also talking with Microsoft to um, to have a more of an online platform. So they started having talks with them. So, to, so then like investors are getting a little bit more interested. Plus, I think they were saying that um, online sales went up 900% for GameStop because of COVID. So the stock is actually doing better. And it started like looking up. So then everyone who shorted it was like, no, we can't have the price going up because if the price goes up, like if the price went from 50 to 100 you and the owner of the stock wants it back, you have to buy it at 100 and you lost 50 bucks. Mm-hmm. So For it's very sure. dangerous yeah. when it goes higher. So they started shorting even more because when you sell stocks, the price of the stock tends to go down. When you buy more stocks, the price of the stock goes up. It's a simple supply and demand when people are buying more, there's more demand for it. Price is going to go up. They're selling more. There's less demand, more of a supply. We're going to price goes down. So they started shorting more and more. That somehow it got to 140% short. So more stocks were shorted than actually exist in the market. So that's when people saw that. They were just like, these people are gaming the system. Like, they're trying to make this company go under so they don't have to pay. Plus, they're um, they're shorting more stocks that actually exist. Like, nah, this is not going to be okay. So that's when re- they, the guy was finally able to get other people to agree to start buying into the stock. Since as they start buying more and more, one, they have control of these shares. But two, the price is just skyrocketing. You saw how it went from like 20 bucks to like 200 I think the high is about 400 and they're just buying. So that was the initial kind of issue that everyone saw and everyone kind of like jumped on because it's hilarious. Like uh, pretty much these guys are like, we don't like hedge funds, which very few people like hedge funds yeah. for the people who invest in them. 
Um, and they go and they're just like, we're going to just like mess with them and screw them over and put the price up. So now the price is just increasing. And then you have the people who the hedge funds borrowed shares from freaking out and being like, we want our shares now. And yeah. they're trying to buy and they have to pay, I think, um, I forgot the name of um, Melvin, I believe is the name of the hedge fund that like they're down like $3 billion already and had to get infusions from other hedge funds, Citadel and Point 72, giving them more money to try um, so they can kind of stay afloat and pay back what they need to pay back. Right. Yeah. But this all isn't over yet because a lot of them can still hold their, um, they don't have to cover their shorts yet. So they're like, okay, we're just going to wait this out. We're just going to wait this out and wait for the price to kind of drop before buying. So you have Reddit who's trying to buy everything and, um, and the hedge funds trying to buy back wherever they can. So that's where the whole issue now came with Robinhood. At one point they, they made it that, that the users cannot buy GameStop or AMC or what these are called, um, meme stocks that's what they refer to these as um and they're only allowed to sell which this is causing major drama because is that legal they're it's supposed to be a free market they're not exactly um they're not opening they're not allowing for a free market but um one thing i should mention let me kind of backtrack here but how a company like robin hood works is it's a zero commission so you can go open an account start buying and selling trades and you don't have to give any money for buying and selling trades. You just get the stocks in your um, account, which seems all fine and dandy. And they're like, we're against big institutional. We want to decentralize the stock market, but for a company like Robinhood to exist, they must be making money somehow. Of course. So now we, now we're seeing that come to light. Yeah. So there's a couple of different reasons why you hear that Robinhood stopped trades. I've heard two main reasons. The first one is being that like the stockbrokers like Robinhood, what they have to do is when, when people are trading, they actually have to put up money on their own to cover these transactions until they clear. Just so if the person's money doesn't clear, then um, Robinhood has to cover that cost. So so this is just kind of how these a lot of these um, companies work. But Robinhood, since they don't charge any commissions, they don't charge anything like that. A lot of it starts out as investors' money as it's getting more money. So they ended up saying that they no longer have the capital to cover these transactions. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> that's why that's what they're saying as a reason. So. Um, they had to take out loans. And right after they did do the stop, they did take out some loans. So there might be some truth to this one. The Fair reason- enough. But what does that mean for the market, though? Like when a company like that could just... Because think about how many people lost money on that. Like um, they lost potential to make money. They lost... Well, if they can't, if their value can't increase, it can only go down. They're going to lose the money that they already put in. So what does that mean? Like moving forward, like that's a pretty dangerous precedent, in my yeah. opinion. No, it's it's really dangerous, and this is where you're getting like the SEC to come in and look at um, look at what is going on. SEC, right. I don't know how much 
um, especially yeah, there's in Canada, no, if you know it. There's no need to get into like the legal but, side of it because yeah. I don't. That's like a whole other discussion. Yeah. But uh, no, it was more so just like the idea of like that all these corporations that have all your money and and you're investing all this money at, at the click of a button they could just remove an option and now you, you lose the money or you can't buy it. So that's a, that to me sounds a bit scary because like moving forward, like what's going to stop other companies from doing something like that and then saying, Oh, well we didn't have the capital. Um, so th- that's just where I was thinking. Yeah. And I mean, this becomes a big thing, especially like when in March, as the market was just like crashing, a lot of people were trying to take their money out because the market's crashing. We need to take our money out which from an investor side is not always the best idea, but um, that's neither here nor there. (laughs) But um, a lot of websites from different companies, Fidelity, BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, their websites broke down because it wasn't used to that much of a flow. And that caused a huge major thing because people are trying to take their money out and there's no physical way for them to take their money out. And if you're calling, it's backlogged because everyone's calling. So people are losing money by the second because they're not able to get in to to take their money out. So they have to take it out at a lower price. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of times, like it is a market, but also once there's not a hundred percent free access, like as you and I cannot go and just purchase, like, go up to the stock market and like purchase these stocks. Yeah. yeah. There's always going to be middleman, which just like adds into the system and games the system more and more. And actually another thing, another um, train, like train of thought about why um, Robin hood actually did this is Robin hood. How it actually does these trades is, when we send trades to Robinhood, they route their trades to different um, <clears throat> market makers. So these market okay. makers help add liquidity into the market. They're the ones that make sure that there's a sell across of every buy. So you can't just like sell. You can't just buy if there's no one selling it. So that's yeah. the roles of a lot of these market makers. And one of yeah. the biggest ones is actually Citadel. And Citadel pays Robinhood for these flows because them getting the flows is beneficial for them as well because a lot of times they're the ones with the second stock so they can make some money off of it. So because people are thinking because Robinhood flows to these big names like hedge funds like Citadel, if Citadel's like, you need to stop doing buys, and they're the they're the major source of money. Like Robinhood doesn't make much money off of people. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like it seems like there's way. like two cohorts in this investing world. It's like hedge fund folks and and regular people like us. Like it just feels like it's a war almost like between the two of them. That's what it is right now. It's a war between the two yeah. of them. There's a, another cohort. There's the investment people. I would like to point this out since us investment people really want just the market to go up and to make money for the people in the fund. So of I would course. like to mention that we are the good guys. Yes, yes, you are. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's uh, let's take a shift a little bit and kind of go back to you uh, personally because I have a couple questions before I let you go and enjoy the rest of your weekend. Um, but first things first, did you ever feel any cultural pressure when you were deciding what career to pursue? Because obviously being Coptic Orthodox, like we all know and 
Uh, maybe we don't experience it in our own homes, but we've experienced it indirectly or seen it. Um, the pressure of our society or our culture to push you into, you know, certain careers, right? Like you should be this or you should do that or you shouldn't do that. Um, did you ever feel that growing up? Uh, did that affect any of your decisions along the way? Uh, or were you just pretty much given like the green light to do whatever you want? And hey, we you have unconditional support. You, you're good to go. I mean, I feel like there definitely was a little bit of a pressure. I don't know if it was as much from my parents or maybe just me internally comparing myself to everyone else, but um, like med school was very much like suggested, pushed upon me when I was younger, especially since I was the 4.0 good SAT. Like I was the kid that was like primed to get into one of those programs. And once I realized I wasn't in, I didn't want to go that route, then I kind of felt like I needed to stay within medicine for things to make sense. And I knew a couple of um, Egyptian people who went into biomedical engineering. So I was like, this makes sense. And then I think after a while is when I started realizing, like, I don't want to do these specific things. Like, this doesn't fit my personality. Um, So that's when I, like, started to branch off. And I never thought I would end up in finance. And now that I am, I'm honestly like really happy here, which is how I moved somehow from like data analysis to actually doing trades and trading all day. And like, I can't see myself in another career now, but it's just crazy because I never expected that to be the case. I don't think I even knew finance was a viable option when I was younger. Uh, sure. And I'm I'm not sure many of us even know that. I, I didn't really know much about finance. So I did a business degree and I, did, I took a finance course in second year. That's when I learned about finance. And that's when I learned that finance is not for me. It was like instant. Like I was, going, I was sitting through these lectures like, wait, what is going on here? Like I only just understood like the concept of trading 15 minutes ago on this call. So I appreciate you for that. Um, are there a lot of before we get into the actual industry, are there a lot of Coptic women in finance? Are there any Coptic women in finance? I think I, I might know a couple, but really off the top, you were the only one that I remember. So do you, do you know many other Coptic women in, in your industry? Um, I know of one, the rest, I, I don't really know. Like I'm also pretty new to the field, so I don't know many of the okay, like, fair enough. The people. It is funny though because I did randomly run into a Coptic person in Vanguard who was in a different like he was in a different division. But I saw like the name and it was clearly Coptic. I was like, oh, there's a Coptic person. <laughs> but other than that, <laughs> I, I love I love that I love those like experiences when you're looking through the list of names and then you're like, oh my goodness, that's another Egyptian. And then sometimes you have it completely wrong. It's like a whole different person and they just somehow have a very Egyptian name, but. I don't know. I've had like there's they're definitely Arab, but they're not like Egyptian Egyptian, and there's a difference. It's okay. You're speaking to a Samantha Mikael, which does not sound. <laughs> <laughs> you read it and you're like, oh, white girl. Oh well, tell me, fatty you, fatty Joachim. Like I don't even think many Egyptian people have heard Joachim before, so uh, I hear you on that. Um, now, industry wise, is it a male dominated field? Like based on your experiences so far. Um, because I feel like from the outside looking in, that's what it feels like. Is that true? It it definitely is. And it more depends on which firm you're at because a lot of firm end up being like 
the old white male type industry where if you look around, like everyone kind of looks like each other. And, um, and I mean, for me, that rarely bugs me because from my biomedical engineering days, I, I did a concentration in electrical engineering. So a lot of my classes were electrical engineering and I was the only girl in any of those classes and just kind of moving on to my physics classes, everything like a lot of times I'm one of the only one or two girls in a class. So I kind of, that doesn't bug me anymore because to me, that just means like I deserve to be there and that pretty much I can show all these guys up if I really, really needed to. <laughs> but it did get a little bit harder once you start moving into the workforce because that's when a bunch of these people like go out for lunch together or all chat about one thing or another. And then you very much get pushed to the side because you don't fit there. So like my team was all guys and they would all go out for lunch together without me, or they would like go and um, they would like do things together. And I would always get pushed to the side. And I did have issues like my boss would tend to give any administrative work to me. Oh, can you set up a room for this? Oh, can you set up a meeting for this? And I don't, he doesn't mean to like a lot of it is very unconscious. You just like say first person that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's the problematic part though. Yeah. The fact that they don't really understand what, you know, how you're taking that. Yeah. So how does that make Like, how do you deal with that? And how do you turn that around into like, because especially like you don't want to get down on yourself and it affect your job, especially when you're in a in a field where you're dealing with people's money. Right. So you want to make sure you're on the ball, ready to go. Like, how do you turn that feeling into something productive or like um, how do you just like shut it out and continue to do what you do? So for me, like I just kind of at a point just kept doing my work, but then once I start seeing a team or a job is going to, it's like this and it's a systemic. That's when I start looking to see, okay, maybe it's time for me to, to advance. Maybe it's time for me to look for other things, to look at other roles. And that's what kind of happened. It wasn't just the gender thing. There were other reasons why I left Vanguard and Vanguard's a great company. Don't get me wrong. Um, But like, as it seemed like I was outgrowing my team, I started looking internally for other roles, but also externally. And I could see there's um, the structure just wouldn't give me like where I was at in Vanguard. If you're on the data side, you would mainly stay on the data side. So that's why I kind of also started looking outwards and I found the role that I ended up getting. It was one of those roles I was not qualified for at all. Yeah. And I was like, let me just apply. Why not? And <laughs> why not? Yeah. Why not? And it actually was interesting because the first interview after HR was with my now manager. And one, it was a woman. And I'm just interviewing. I'm interviewing. I'm doing my thing. And then I like mentioned since the job would be for trading and I, I don't have trade experience. I only have post trade. So analytics after the trade, not actual trade experience. And I mentioned that to her. She's like, no, that's fine. We can teach you, blah, 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 blah. And then she goes, by the way, what you did there was something that only women do. Women sell themselves short and want to prove like, hey, look, this is the, this is exactly what you're getting out of me. I know this. I don't know this. Well, guys, fake it till they make it. They just, they'll be like, yeah, no, I got this. And just like not say anything. And 
say that they can do it until they teach themselves what to do and they can do. And she was like, don't ever sell yourself short, especially in an interview. And once she said this to me, I was like, I want to work for this woman. Because she didn't need in an interview to actually explain to me what I'm doing right or wrong. Like, that's rare in job interviews. But it showed that she would be a strong female role model. And now the company I'm at now, like half my team is women. Um, a lot of the senior execs for different parts are women. So it's very, very, like, women-heavy, like, workplace. Yeah, and yeah, for sure. I kind of was looking for that. So it all worked out together. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm happy for you. Um, and I want to give you back the rest of your weekend because we're coming up on an hour. So um, I just want to say, Sanetha, thank you so much for your time like, um, and your patience with me and, and rescheduling because I really thought that this – and I think, honestly, you, you said it on the call. God works in very interesting ways, and I think pushing the conversation to now and then everything that happened in the last week um, was a low-key blessing because I'm so happy that we got to talk about this. And there's so many things that are happening in the market that people don't really understand but are aware of and they know what's going on. Um, but I think that this clarification is going to really help. So I appreciate your time. Um, thank you so much for, for giving me time away. I know, I know your, your little guy is probably jealous of me right now, but, um, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. And don't worry. My dog was right next to me listening the entire time. So we're all good. good. Awesome. Awesome. Thank, thank you, you so much. Me. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. You too. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Sam, Samantha, Mikhail from everywhere in the States. I was going to say from New York City, but she's been all over the country um, to do different things. But that was such an amazing conversation. I think uh, it was a blessing, the timing that we did this, because the fact that, you know, we were able to talk about everything that's happening with the market right now and um, to give that financial background, I think it was very important. So thank you, Samantha, for joining the show. Uh, and thank you, everyone, for giving me suggestions. I know that actually Samantha was a direct... Uh, link from the suggestion box. So for anyone who is interested in finance, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And uh, you know where to find me uh, on, actually, I used to say listener, but now it's called Memento. So we're on Memento, we're on Spotify, we're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, and you know where to find me on Instagram. So I'll catch you on the next episode. <laughs>